More than 45 years ago, when Acres USA started, only a few lone voices chose to stay off the toxic agriculture bandwagon, farm with nature, and start a movement. Now, tens of thousands actively reject toxic agriculture methods, and Acres USA's community of eco-growers and professional farmers are driving the changes happening around the world. Through our monthly magazine, events, books, audio lectures, and podcasts, Acres USA teaches people how to successfully apply ecological-based farming strategies. Through practical and hands-on education, Acres USA aims to lead the world to ecologically and economically sustainable agricultural standards. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. If you call, mention you heard this advertisement on the Permaculture Podcast and receive 10% off your order of any educational materials. Acres USA magazine subscription and event tickets are not included. Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. If you've been thinking of donating to the show but haven't yet, now is a great time to do so. Become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Give a one-time donation online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. Or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Author, teacher, and forager Pascal Baldar joins me today to discuss his exploration of primitive brews and fermentation, the basis for his latest book, The Wildcrafting Brewer. He shares with us the way we can combine local ingredients that serve as our flavor with water, sugar, and yeast to create sodas, beer, wine, and mead with a taste and sense of place. If you're familiar with his first book, the new wildcrafted cuisine, then you know his thoughts push the limits of what we might think of when considering what to toss into our brew pot. Using these methods, he again takes us in an unexpected direction that goes from the social drinks we might expect to also look at how we might consider making culinary, healing, or even psychotropic beverages. Enjoy this conversation with Pascal, and I'll join you again afterward. So in the last uh, two years, I've been very busy uh, looking at wild food through different, basically looking at how to preserve wild food and create an interesting cuisine using preservation, traditional preservation method, for example, fermentation. So when my book came out, of course, uh, one of the feedback I got was, we are super interested by the wild beer. <laughs> wild beer and the wine, too. And also the sodas, but the beer were like, you know, people were really like, wow, this is interesting. And I basically decided to uh, just sit down and, you know, instead of answering gazillion questions from people, uh, just to sit down and create a book about wild beers and wild fermentation, you know, alcoholic fermentation using wild yeast and, you know, the possibilities, how people can create drinks that will kind of represent their own terroir or their own environment and how they can research their local flavors. And aside from that, the, the next thing, I'm actually working on the book number three now, which is lacto-fermentation. So it's going to be a book about lacto-fermentation and wild food. I want to talk with you about what the distinction is with lacto-fermentation. But before we get there, the new wildcrafted cuisine in many ways elevated foraged foods from something that we would eat just for simple sustenance. You know, many of the books that we had 
up until just the last couple of years on foraging have been about like survival kind of situations. Where can I get these calories easily in order to get food into us? But then you've been working with moving from really the the forest to the table. And in this process of exploring the wild beverages, what were some of the interesting things that you discovered in fermenting these kinds of food products? Were you running into any kind of interesting issues, like where certain things may have had, say, antibacterial properties that kept them from fermenting or anything like that? Actually, no. This is what I've really discovered. A lot of the drinks that we have right now are extremely civilized. And when I say civilized, meaning by that they, you know, it's a beer, it's a wine, you know, you taste it and it really, you know, you can recognize if it's a beer or if it's a wine or whatever. And by playing with wild food and wild plants, aromatic plant and bitter plant and, and wild yeast, my big discovery was really that there is no defined timeline or, or defined line of what fermented beverage are. A lot of the fermented beverage that I make now, people will have a difficult time to define them because I really kind of threw all the rules away a little bit and going like, why am I stuck having to brew with, you know, with uh, grain or and hops? Why am I stuck uh, having to brew with, you know, honey to make a mead? And why am I stuck, you know, fermenting berries to make a wine? And I kind of started to mix all kinds of different stuff together. And, and the more I started to write, to write that book and work on that book, the more I realized there are no rules. And the rules are really flavors. You know, you can mix different, different sources of sugar. You can mix uh, plants and berries and, and create really incredible drinks. But, you know, it's basically going back in time and rediscovering the lost flavors that modern civilization has kind of lost, really. What were some of those flavors that emerged as you worked on this project and dug into fermented beverages more deeply? You know, it's interesting, like if uh, it's the ability to actually create a, a fermented beverage that tastes like an environment. I'm actually able to make, for example, a mountain beer that will have little hints of pine, little hints of fur, you know, but the bitterness. It's like you drink it and it's like you're drinking memory. It's, it's like a sense of place, a sense of time. You know, I think when somebody is brewing and making their own concoction, it's like a pleasure moment. It's like you can go back in time and you can actually taste in what in the beverage that you make, the memories, the emotion, the, the aesthetic that you had when you were when you were actually collecting the plant. It's fascinating stuff. And I think of how closely many of our human memories are tied to food and drink, our sense of taste and our sense of smell. And thinking about, you know, right after it rains and walking out into a forest and taking all of that in. And the way that you can create, as you're describing, this very place-based regional flavor. Based on what you're harvesting and the beverages you're creating. Yeah. And what I found is that fermentation is actually super, super, super simple. It has been made very complicated. But you can go back to the basics. And the basics is you simply need flavor, plants. You need yeast. Wild yeast can be found in all kinds of different ways. You need water and then sugar. And sugar, you have all kinds of different sources of sugar. So right now, I mean, if you want to make a beer and you you brand new and you start doing research on the internet or even in books, it's become a super complex subject. And a lot of the people who do my class, who come to my class, you know, 
love the fact that my fermentation are very, very primitive, but in the same time, they actually love the flavor. Don't take me wrong, I've done a lot of bad stuff in the past, <laughs> you know, but over the years, I've really kind of refined a little bit, you know, some of the recipe. And yeah, a lot of people really love them. It was about 10 years ago, I was a home brewer and I went through a lot of the scrubbing and cleaning and sanitizing and washing and boiling and doing all of these really long kind of ritualistic cleaning processes. And, you know, I had some things that went wrong, but it was in reading things like Sandor Katz or Jeremy Zimmerman who kind of, they address that, yes, we need to make sure that we're clean, but beyond that, we have a lot of room to play with these things. Oh, Absolutely. And when it comes to your wild yeasts and things, are you just like leaving the pot open for your fermentation to gather what's there? Or are you searching for things in the wilderness to introduce it? Yeah, you know, I've tried that method to leave the, the pot open. And to be honest, in California, that doesn't work very well because I think it's too hot. It's, uh, it's done in Belgium, you know, when they do the traditional beer. But they do that usually during the winter, if I recall. So my technique is really to do a wild yeast starters. That means I just take... For example, juniper berries, and I put them in a sugar water solution in a jar. So it's something like 20% sugar, 80% water, then a bunch of berries. And then I close the jar, but not too tight. And I shake it like three times a day. Within three or four days, it's bubbling. And, you know, basically the yeast metal of little babies. I have a whole civilization in my jar. And this is what I used to actually uh, put into my uh, beverage to ferment them. When it comes to that line between a soda and an alcoholic beverage, are you controlling the amount of alcohol by limiting the fermentation time, or are you reducing the amount of sugar so it just can't produce that much alcohol? Uh, it's actually you have to do both, but you know it's there is no line again. You know you can make a soda with one percent alcohol, you can make a soda with two, you know, three percent alcohol. It becomes what you call a kind of like a wine cooler a little bit. It's, you know, you basically have to play with fermentation time and the amount of sugar. Uh, you can use, a, you know, some people really like sugar and you can use honey too. And you can make a soda to be very sugary, but you just ferment it for 24 hours and then you place it in the fridge. And then you wait, you know, you basically drink it pretty fast because it will eventually will continue fermenting in the fridge. But the soda, usually drink them within, what, two or three days of making them. With your sources of sugar... I remember from many of the foraging books that I've read and some classes that I've been to that, you know, sources of sugar in quantity, like we think of with honey or pressed sugar cane, are relatively rare in uh, many of our environments. Are you using purchased sugars in some of your recipes or are you trying to source as many things from the land around you? No, in the book, I actually kept it uh, to a lot of, uh, you know, like brown sugar, honey. But I mean, think about it. You have tree sap, maple syrup. That's one. Sometimes, you know, I give example of the stuff I, I use, which is, and, and sugar is actually not rare in nature. You just need berries and fruits. You can create your own molasses. So you can take, for example, locally, I have um, cactus pears. And I will basically just extract the juice and then boil it, boil it, boil it until it becomes condensed like a very thick mollusk. And then I can use that as a fermentation sugar for making sodas or even sometimes as part of other, you know, sugar source for my beers. So it's, it's yeah, I think molasses was actually the solution for me, is to be able to take you to find fruits 
you know, and it can be feral fruits. It could be pears, it could be figs. You know, locally I have figs, I have dates. You know, Los Angeles, we have a lot of dates and uh, palm trees. But, you know, if I was in Vermont, I would use apples, I would use pears, for example. And then just finding the ways within that environment and what's available to you to find the ways to extract the juice, to get the sugar, and turn that into something usable. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, if I was in Vermont in New York, definitely maple syrup or birch syrup. I think I, I give a list of like eight or nine different trees you can actually tap. I can't, do, I can't do it in Southern California because it's too hot, but definitely in Vermont, I would never use brown sugar. I would be using tree sap. And I've heard of fermenting tree sap is t- to create kind of a, a maple soda. And that's one of the things on my list that I really want to try. Yeah. And, and this is the fun thing. You know, it's like it, my book is really a book of ideas. I don't want people to redo my recipe. Actually, I want people to do their own recipe. You know, I'm just giving example. I, I give example of, to a, of sugar source. I give example of how to extract wild yeast. I give example of the basic plant that you can use to make beers and sodas and, you know, basically list and different stuff. But people should be able to take that book and say, what can I do with it? It's, it's basically going back to being a art, fermenting artist to some degree. You know, it's, it's, it's very artistic to, to go back and rediscover the flavor that you have around you. And you, can, you don't have to go foraging either. You can go into your garden. I have my own wild garden. I, I pick up mint, for example, a bit of mint, a bit of lemon, a bit of yeast, sugar, and there you go. You got the delicious drink right there. And then add a little bit of ginger. You go to the next step. It's even better. And then you can put maybe a little bit of mugwort. So now you start going wild. You, can, you know, you can create incredible drink. It's so simple to do. So what I want to teach people is really it's simple to do. It doesn't have to be complex, you know, and I'm sure the book will be a bit controversial with, with traditional brewers or people who make beer because it's a bit archaic and primitive, but it works, you know, and I'm not aging my beer like they do for many years. Most of the, the beers or the drinks that I make, aside from wine and meats, I drank within like two months, for example, but... You know, I just want to, sh- you know, show people that it doesn't have to be complex. It can be done and it can be super delicious if you do it properly. And it's fun to experiment and have failure too sometimes. You know, you make drinks, they don't taste too good. You go like, okay, fine. I have done a lot of bad drinks, you know, but it's part of the fun too. And I've had the opportunity to spend a good bit of time with Jeremy Zimmerman, um, one of your Chelsea Green co-authors. And when I saw him last year, he had a curry mead that just tasted exactly like what I would expect if I go to my local Indian restaurant. It was just full of spice and flavor. I don't know that it would necessarily be something that I would brew, but it was certainly an interesting experience and experiment in flavor and how you can push these kinds of lines. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that's the fun of it. But you can also think in a completely different way. For example, uh, I think I talk in my book about culinary beer. So what about making beer with, for example, uh, thyme or coriander? And so you, you basically can make beer that you will use like we do in Belgium for cooking. So you can cook your chicken or you can brine your chicken or you can cook your rabbit, you know, using beer like we do and, and have a beer that is actually tailored for the recipe. So you will make a thyme with coriander or something else, rosemary beer. So you can cook a specific dish with it. So you can start thinking a little bit differently. It's not just for drinking, but it's also for culinary use. And if you can make alcohol too, guess what? You can turn them into vinegar too. So that would be something else. It's not part of the book, but 
I make a lot of custom vinegar with my drinks. And it makes me think, you know, kombucha is still a very popular home fermented beverage. And the way that we can push the flavor with that in our local environment, being able to pull some of those herbs and other things that we might find. Oh, yeah, totally. I didn't even go into kombucha because I'm really about, you know, using uh, natural bacteria, like things that I can find in nature. So kombucha is not one of them for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I stick to wild yeast and as local aceti bacteria to make vinegar and then also lacto-fermentation. And it sounds then like what you're trying to provide people is kind of a list of the materials and places where they can find them, the ingredients, and then some inspiration and master recipes to get folks started, but then to open the door for them to play and experiment with all of these different flavors and opportunities from something that might be a local soda that they might drink with their children and family, to beers and wines, to things that they can cook with. Yeah, and I even say in the book, I say, I want you guys to do your own recipe. Basically, the book is, this is what I do. This, this is how I approach things. And, you know, this is, the book is a good example of what I can do locally with my stuff. And also, you know, I mean, I even have beer from Belgium because I travel in Belgium and then I went to Vermont, so I make Vermont beer. So I give an example, but by all means, this is just, it's a list of methods. It's, a, it's an approach to ingredients. It's a, it's a way of looking at fermentation from a more archaic and pure perspective without any complexity. But really, I want people to do to make their own stuff. It's not difficult. And the rewards are fantastic. I mean, it's... It's so much fun. I mean, it's it's true. It's so much fun. In many regards, I don't know if you've read his book, but Stephen Herod Buner wrote Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers. Of course, this was the inspiration. Many years ago, I I got the book when it just came out, and I went, holy crapola. And that's that's why I said making beer. I actually made this first Mogwart beer, uh, and I fell in love with it, and I started to tweak the recipe because I have my own native Mogwart locally and I started, you know and I added lemon to it or whatever but he was a huge inspiration for me and that's what I really got looking through your book and reading the recipes was that this feels kind of like an update of many of the things that he was working on while also very much in your voice that blends these simple practices and recipes and brings them forward to where things are that takes these ideas of craft brewing and this artisanal approach to foods and seasonality, our local environment, and then brings them all together for, I don't want to say a modern reader, but a current reader who's been through many of these practices and tried many of these things that you open a new door and a direction for us. Yes, I think my public is definitely people who are into food, people who are, you know, people with gardens or like to forage, chefs, foodies, you know, those are not, it's not complex. So anybody can do this. It's really a simple book, and everybody can do this kind of drink and have fun, and and it can be done safely. And you know, I'm not sure it is, if it's a. It's not really a book for somebody who makes some very sophisticated beer or craft beer and wine. I don't think so, unless somebody you know will be interested to add ingredients to their own beer and, and look at it. You know, but maybe it can inspire them to experiment a little bit more. But it's definitely more archaic than the way they approach brewing right now. And there's nothing wrong with it, by the way. I like it. I like to go back in time. You know, I actually had an archaeologist who came to see me 
because they're doing study in, in uh, of all parts. You know, when they scrape the parts that they find in tombstone and stuff like that, and they basically find out that the braveries that were made were kind of very similar to what I'm doing. People were basically fermenting with what they had around them. So those ferments were actually really a mix of all kinds of different stuff. You will have a little bit of mead, you will have a little bit of uh, berries, you, you could have bitter herbs, you know, maybe a little bit of grain too. So it's got basically just a mishmash of different things all together that would either have done the job in terms of flavor or in terms of psychotropic effects. It's amazing to me that how long humanity has been fermenting. Some of the history that I've read that it's possible that fermented beverages predate agriculture and that agriculture may have been driven by our desire to make beer. But I mean, I mean, if you think about it, you just honey, raw honey is already loaded with wild yeast. So you just basically need to add a little bit of water and bingo, you get, you already get a primitive mead. I'm sure people discovered that way before rains, you know, in the thousands of years ago, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, people probably were drinking that kind of beverage. It's so easy to do. Out of your recipes, in your first book, you had a, f a fermented beverage made from lerp sugar, which to me was fascinating that it was an, an insect sugar. <laughs> They were using to ferment with, which I think was probably the, the recipe out of your first book that kind of blew my mind. <laughs> but in your current book, what were some of the more interesting ferments that arose from your experimentation and discovery? Um, I, w I think I went deeper into looking at locations like terroir fermenting, like being able to ferment whole environment. I started doing that in the first book, but this book, yeah, I went a little bit deeper and started really adding, you know, medicinal mushroom, for example, you know, twigs and leaves. I think I just went deeper and I also gained more experience on blending those ingredients for flavors. And also, I think the more I went into the book, the more I realized that there are no rules. I mean, it should taste good. It should not be poisonous, but those, those are pretty much your only two rules that I use. Everything else is like, go wild, create. You know, think of a fermentation as a blank canvas and you're a painter. Have fun with it. Sometimes, you know, some painting are better than others, but there is, you know, there is so much things that you, that you can create and, and have fun with. You know, it's, it's basically the books. Making that book has teach me to actually break the rules. And you can see that in some stuff like, you know, the lazy fruit or the berry wine. So I'm actually, you know, fermenting berries and and in big jars. And I really broke the rule because I'm working with my ferment as I go along. Meaning by the time I taste them as I go along. So I may add sugar after three or four days. I may add a little bit of more bitter herb uh, after a week or two. So I'm starting to have a very direct relationship with my own fermented concoction and work with them as I go along and, you know, until I'm really happy with them and stop whenever I want to. I, may, I can make a wine that's sugary and slightly alcoholic or I can push it and add more sugar and make it very alcoholic and bitter by adding mugwort or different bitter herb to it if I wanted to or yarrow. 
I don't know a lot of people with that approach to, to fermentation, but it works. You know, it works. I, it's, it's like if my ferment are becoming like my kids, you know. <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I check them out and I work with it and I taste and I, you know, if I put them in a jar, I burp them, make sure that, you know, there is no excessive pressure. It's a way of life. It, be, it really becomes a way of life with all the lacto-fermentation and alcoholic fermentation. I love it. I absolutely love it. It does sound a lot different from when I was doing kind of formal brewing where it was, you know, primary fermentation for a couple of days, then secondary fermentation for a good bit longer, racking off, aging, bottling, aging again. I work as I go along and I, I just did a class, was it three weeks ago, a wild beer class. And I had a professional brewer and he told me, like, you're breaking all the rules. But in the same time, say, I taste the beer and it's fantastic. But here I was, you know, I mean, with clean hand, you know, I make my beer. I have all these leaves and, and the barks and roots and all kinds of different stuff. And I basically take my hand and squeeze it inside the bottle. He looked at me and goes, like, oh, my God, you're not supposed to do that. You know, I'm like, OK, you know, my hands are clean. I just clean them, you know, but still, you know. No, it's, it's about, you know, having a direct connection with your fermentation. I, I'll be honest, I have never had a fermentation go bad. And I think probably it's because I don't use a lot of grains. I think grain is probably extremely finicky, but I use different sources of sugar from grain. Actually, I had a whole section about uh, brewing with grain and my publisher decided to remove it. And I agree with them. I agree with them. He said, Pascal, you know, stick to what you do. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. Actually, to be honest, I had one beer going bad, and the only beer that went bad was the one that I used with grains. So I think grains, you, I will agree with grains that you probably need to be like much more careful. But if you start using sugar and molasses and all kinds of different stuff and wild yeast, oh, I think you have a lot of freedom. Well, I'm glad that you didn't include grain in this book because I, in some ways it would have been a distraction from all the other wonderful things that you've included when it comes to these beverages. And it's one of those things, there are tons of people brewing with grains. You know, you can go get a magazine that will give you 20, 50, 100 recipes to try to mimic commercial beers and everything else. But what you've given us is this side lineage of all of the different ways that we can ferment that move away from what we think of as necessary for beers and other fermentations like grains or hops, where really, when we look at the history of these ideas, that Hops is a relatively new introduction relative to all of these other bitter herbs that were used for unknown ages. Right. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the book will be poo-pooed from time to time. You know, I've had like a wine guy who was going like, oh, my God, you're making vinegar, you're not making wine. Yeah, you know, because it was so primitive. And eventually my, brew, my wine would probably turn into vinegar. Although, you know, to tell you the truth, I have an elderberry wine that I made nine years ago and it's still good. You know, okay. You know, I think it's sad that those people sometimes don't go back and, and start looking back at the f how simple the original fermentation are. There is nothing wrong, by the way, about making modern beer, modern wine. But I'm saying there is a whole world that is completely valid, and it's a whole world of flavor that should be that can be explored. And it is as valid as making modern meat, wine, or beer. This this whole in between, you know, it's nearly shamanistic. If you think about it, yeah, some people have, and you know, have had some of my brews and go like, "Oh my God, I had some intense dream that night." Yeah, so, actually, mugwort is slightly psychotropic. It's supposed to intensify your dream. Hops is also medicinal. So yeah, I mean, every 
a regular beer is a psychotropic too. I mean, if you're doing 10 Budweiser, you're going to feel it. But the plants have a way to talk to you through fermentation too, which is kind of interesting. So there is, a, you know, there probably could be a whole book written on how the plant can talk to you through fermentation. And the effect from a medicinal point of view, the psychotropic point of view, you know, you can make, you could actually make beer to calm you. You can make beer to make you more happy. You could make beer to probably make you horny. You could make beer to make you sad if you wanted to be depressed that day. I'm sure there is, you know, you, you can actually do that kind of things if you wanted to. You know, you can make beer to, to healing beer, you know, to reduce fever by using maybe willow bark, you know. You can make beer for cold and flu. You can make beer with, you know, medicinal mushrooms to boost your immune system. And I don't know if you could, can call them beer, you know. I call them beer because it tastes like beer. It actually, it follows the, the, the definition of beer because sometimes I get also the like, you cannot call those beers, you know, because you don't use hops, you don't use grains. Uh, but there is actually uh, another definition of beer, and I'm actually online here. Let me see if I can look at the beer definition. Uh, and people forgot that definition existed too. I even forgot it when I was writing the book. Uh, beer definition. And it's definition number two, which is uh, a carbonated uh, alcoholic beverage or not, uh, with flavoring from roots or other plant, bar plant parts. So basically it's uh, alcoholic or non-alcoholic flavor beverage, which is carbonated and can be made with roots and, and plant parts. That's exactly what I do. And that would be definition number two of beer. And, and they give an example, birch beer. That would be an example. What about root beer? You see what I mean? So it's valid. I can call them beer if I want to. It's always a matter of what, where we draw that line. We have that conversation about native plants and it's, you know, native to when and things like that. So, but it's, I think sometimes that it's more about let's just celebrate these things. We can call them what we call them, and it gives an idea of what it is that we're speaking about, and let's just enjoy it. I know, I know exactly. You know, I, I found out by writing books that every time you do something, uh, you know, it's always going to be a little bit controversial. And this one was, uh, you know, this one was the this book was the case. So, you know, uh, the vast majority, I would say, like ninety percent of people say, ah, fantastic, and then you have. A, Small minority going like, oh, this is not fermentation, this is not beer, this is not very good, this is too primitive. Ugh. It's so much fun, people. Come on. It's sugar, it's yeast, it's flavor. Just put it together and you get a boozy beverage. Congratulations. Enjoy it. It's that simple. And you can completely do it as a celebration of your environment and nature. And it does go back to that simplicity because it's really just a matter of water, sugar, yeast, a fla and a flavoring. Yeah, and flavor. And when I say plant, it could be barks and flowers and twigs and leaves, you know. And even in the first book, I even used insect ants in some of my in all my beer. Lemony ants. And I think about you know we have sassafras that grows around here, the native pawpaw here in the East Coast, and. I mean, those things naturally ferment right when they were becoming popular again about three years ago. They were being sold at my farmer's market. And so I picked up a bag, put them on the counter, didn't get them to the next day. And I opened the bag and it just smelled like I had opened a bottle of booze. Yes. I mean, when I was in Vermont, it was fascinating. Like, uh, I, you know, I was, I was supposed to do a, a beer class over there and I knew nothing about the plant. So I basically spent like three or four days with a local forager over there. 
and you know, within three days, I knew exactly what to do. And we started using some very traditional plants that have been used in the past for brewing. Yellow birch bark, blue spruce, sassafras roots, white pine. I found yarrows. I found the local mugwort over there. So we had so much fun. And uh, the beer was fantastic. And we used maple syrup as the main source of sugar for fermentation. So you had like a Vermont beer right I mean, a forest beer, it was made completely with their forest. All the ingredients came from that location. So we were able to actually make that beer and we cook uh, some fish, uh, trout that were, came from the same lake. So it was trout cooking beer that was still sugary because it was very young. It was only like one week old. It was absolutely delicious. I mean, talk about terroir, talk about local flavor. I mean, how local can you be? When you're going and foraging for sources to ferment, you had mentioned earlier about being careful that we don't poison ourselves. Are there any plants that you don't recommend for a beginner, but that might be something you would explore later? Or do you just kind of push anything that might cause any issues off of your plate? Uh, I push anything that can cause an issue off my plate. But there is no reason. There are so many good ingredients. There is no reason to go into like iffy ingredients. Really, there is no reason for it. There is like so many good stuff, you know, it's, you know, that have been done in the past and proven. And, you know, mugwort, you know, it's also related to wormwood, which, you know, some of the beer are basically like low level absinthe to some degree, probably. I mean, not even close to an absinthe, you know, but you have a little bit of the green fairy inside, which is nothing in the quantity that we use. You know, Mugwort is also using cuisine in different countries and stuff like that, uh, like in uh, in Korea and Japan. So it's not it's not a big deal, but there is a bit of the green fairy inside, which is why explain why people can have you know some interesting dreams that night. So it's but that's the extent of it. You know, I'm, I it's it's not even an issue. You know, the only issue I would say, but I talk about it in the book. You know, there are plants that are uh, slightly abortive. Like not, and I basically say in the book, don't try, don't make those wild beer if you're newly pregnant or if you're pregnant. You know, you're not even supposed to drink beer anyway. You know, but if you don't know what the plants can, you know, what kind of effect the plant can have on you if you're pregnant, don't don't play with those. I mean, I've made those brews now for what nearly close to ten years. You know, and I've had probably hundreds, if not thousands, of people drinking them and. No, it's just keep it simple, keep it safe. I think about some of those culinary lines where people push the edges with wild mushrooms or like fugu coming from the puffer fish and things like that. And that's why I was wondering about that. And also because of some people who have worked on recipes for wild brews that push that psychotropic line in choosing some things that are, are a little questionable. No, I'm actually not very good at that, meaning that I'm not good with drugs. For, for example, I cannot even take marijuana. I can see somebody doing a beer with marijuana, but I can't. I, I won't do it, and I can't do it because marijuana has a reverse effect on, on me. It's depressing. It makes me unhappy and, and paranoid. So I'm actually very careful with drugs. The only drug I use now is wine and beer and stuff like that, but that's it. I, I even stop smoking. Well, and you touched on one of the other things that I had in mind is because of as marijuana becomes 
more prevalent and more legal in the United States, and then also with the general decriminalization and legalization worldwide, I've been seeing more of cannabinoid-laced alcoholic beverages. It seems most of what I've run across are not being fermented directly. They're having something added later, like an extract. But yeah, that's a line that I was wondering if people might be pushing here as time moves forward. I'll have to do some more research in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people will do because that's why some people do that. You know, you could probably write a whole book about psychotropic fermented beverage for sure. But my take is more culinary. I'm, I'm all about flavor and exploration of the local flavor of a terroir or of an environment. So I don't even go into that. Well, I appreciate, though, you exploring that question with me in this context, because it's, you know, with what Stephen Herod Buner has written and some of the other things that I continue to encounter, I really appreciate that because I respect your work and what you've written and to be able to talk about that in this context for others to hear. I mean, you know, I'm sure, I mean, locally we have what we have, we do have magic mushroom, we do have datura. Uh, I mean, you can make some very potent concoction, but some of them probably will be very dangerous too. Uh, and it, you know, if you start to go into that direction, you're gonna have to trade very lightly, I think, because some plants can be extremely powerful. I wonder sometimes what the fermentation process winds up extracting from the plants. And I know reading Sandor Katz books, how you know the vitamins are transformed and some of the other content and the way that things are enriched, the way that that might occur if we're looking to really push any of these lines, even if it's just pushing the alcohol content very high can cause changes in the way that we might drink it or react to it. Absolutely. I mean, when I was doing some research on uh, ancient beer, you definitely see some dog bane and datura and really you know, powerful plant that were used. But those were more into the category of shamanistic, you know, fermented beverage, which were a mix of alcohol and potent plants. Uh, it's, I'm sure it makes you talk to the God. Whoever they are, you're going to talk to them, that's for sure. Well, and I think about when I was exploring early wines that I kept running across this reference to, if my memory's correct, the Romans would make a sack wine that was apparently very, very high in alcohol content. And then that's why you he you will find references to water and wine was to water that down to a point where it was palatable enough that you could drink it all day and not just be, you know, smashed out of your mind. Yeah. And I think it was also a preservation method too, to make a very concentrated, very alcoholic wine. Will keep, make it keep it longer, mostly in a hot climate, too. Uh, and due to the also, you know, I mean, those were primitive wines, so eventually, I mean, I actually don't know they made it. They probably made it like super simple with wild yeast, like I did. So eventually, could potentially turn into vinegar and all. You know, I don't know. What do I know? What do I know? The more I do this stuff, the more I realize I don't know. <laughs> it's true. You know, it's it, like I think you become good at your craft when you realize that you don't know shit yeah oh no i completely agree it's i i think i'm at like 500 interviews or so now over the last seven or so years and the more that i explore this and dig into all of these things the less and less i know yes yes i'm the same way too like you know i i, I think i know and then i move to the next state and I'm like i don't know shit anymore <laughs> it's like starting all over again you bring all this knowledge to the table and it's only so useful Yes, you know, you can spend many lifetimes studying plants, you're never going to be done. One thing that we have mentioned, and as I said earlier that I wanted to loop back to, because we've talked about preservation and the different, you know, the basic form of fermentation with wild yeasts and sugars, you've mentioned lacto-fermentation. How does that differ from the fermentation that we might be used to with 
wild yeasts and sugars, and how does that relate to your interest in preservation? Lacto-fermentation is basically you're dealing with a specific type of bacteria that convert sugar into lactic acid. So it's not like yeast. So yeast basically takes sugar and will turn it into alcohol. Uh, lactobacteria will actually turn, basically make a ferment that is acidic, but it's, it's two, different, two different worlds and two different beasts. So you're not, you know, on one side is a bacteria, on the other side is a yeast. It's called fermentation. It can be confusing for a lot of new people because sometimes they confuse the two subjects, but it's, it's really two different subjects. It's alcoholic on one side, and the other one is food preservation using salt and, and sugary plants to some degree. And then where are you getting those bacteria for a lactic fermentation? Uh, from the plant themselves uh, all the time. I don't use any. I don't use anything. So it's super easy. It's plant and salt. And the plant needs to have some sugar in it, which is why you know fermentation. People use uh, cabbage, carrots, what else? Yeah. Anyway, uh, for kimchi. So you, you do need sugary plant, but aside from that, you can also have. You know, different plant for added flavor. Like you know, I use wild mustard. I use all kind of different local plants too for adding flavor to it. I wasn't thinking about that type of fermentation when you raised that because there was a recipe that I got from Rachel Kaplan years ago about a lacto fermented soda where I was using yogurt and extracting that bacterial culture in order to ferment my sugars to create a soda that was a non-alcoholic soda. And this is the more traditional using salt to draw out the water and then using the bacteria that's already on the food to get it to ferment. Actually, I have two pages in the book. I have four pages. I have one page that says lacto-fermented soda at the end. And then I have one that's a non-fermentation soda. That means it's you, you do it like they used to do in pharmacy by using uh, citric acid and baking soda. So this is four pages there, but I didn't want to go into lacto-fermented soda very much because... I don't do it. I, yeah, I mean, I just put it there because it can be done, but I, it's not something I do. That's not really where your focus or interest is. Yours is more on these wild local beers that give you the these flavor profiles of a place. Or the sodas or the wine, you know, making wine that have a you know, mountain wine and, yeah. And then also, I mean, the thing that was very different too, I think, from the first book was uh, I got... As I was digging deeper into plant I can use for brewing, was the concept of going hiking and make a brew out of your hike, or soda out of your hike. So I call them, I think in the book I call them hike soda. Yeah, cold infused wild soda, hike soda. Where you go around and just pick up, you know, if you know enough about plant, you pick up, or you can do that in your garden. You just go around, pick up plant from your garden, like mint and, you know, sages or whatever. And if you, you know, by gaining experience on the ratio that you can use, you can make absolutely delicious drink. You have me thinking about some of the local traditions here about making violet syrup in the spring, elderberry syrup in the fall, but then the way that we could can store these flavors and then any time during the year convert them into a soda or a brew that we can enjoy. And yeah, I really like that idea of a hike soda because we're about to enter into hiking season here in Pennsylvania. You know, we're recording in April, but we're still getting a snowstorm is supposed to come through tomorrow. But once these pass, 
being able to go out and take my field books, take my guidebooks, and deepen my relationship with these different plants, and also use it as a way to get a better sense of place, to really dig in and find these flavors, to perhaps harvest while I'm out some of the pine buds and other things, and then come back, do a little bit of research, see what I want to play with, and just try. Yeah, I mean, one of the most delicious soda that I make, and I think I found it, I got the recipe even after the book. One of the most delicious one is from a France property. She, she has a goat farm in the, in the mountains, and it's basically a property composed of pinion pine, white fur, and she's got a little bit of yarrow, I think. And the soda is basically a broken branch of pinion pine, two little uh, branches of white fur with a needle cut, and I break the branch of the pinion pine so the sap can release a little bit. And then I stick that in sugar water. Uh, I can use honey. And then I let it ferment for like two or three days. It's unbelievable. It is so good. It's like candy. It tastes like candy. You know, it, it's, I mean, that's the simplicity of it. You know, people are blown away when I, when I do that in the class. I did a class like two weeks ago. And, I, you know, I put that in the bowl and they were looking at me like, yeah, okay, you're pushing it. But then I already had one that was fermented. So I opened it and they tasted it. Just, they could not believe it. And they were like, oh my God, it's that simple. This conversation reminds me that I have a couple of bottles of wild fermented sizer waiting for me that I need to go dig out. They've been aging for about two years I moved a while back and they went into a box and went into storage and I'll have to go dig those out. You know, I, I did the same thing. I was, just, I was cleaning the storage and I found out that I had 12 bottles of mead and I don't even know what the mead is because there is no label on it. And it's been there for six years now. So I'm like, okay. And now the time comes to crack one of those and see what's there, right? Yeah, hopefully it's going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I. <laughs> I enjoyed our first conversation so much, Pascal, and I'm so happy to have had this one with you today. And it's always a delight because of the way that you push my thoughts on what we can do when it comes to food and wild ingredients. And before we draw this to a close, I was wondering, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Yes. You know, um, even if you do something bad or you taste it and you go like, eh, there is still some pos creative possibilities. Like uh, uh, I did a mead uh, four years ago. There was like just honey and, you know, I forgot what I put in it. But anyway, I tasted it. It was like super like meh, you know, very alcoholic and meh. And I look at it and instead of throwing it away, I went, no, wait a minute. What can you do with that? What can you do? And I just looked at it from a brand new viewpoint and said, this is, a this is now my blank canvas. Blank canvas is the, this mead that I don't like. And I turn it into something incredible by just adding a little bit more water to dilute the amount of alcohol. And I infused it with different, with pinion pine, uh, I had a little bit of fermented lime. I started to do this whole recipe in that mead. And then I aged it for another three months. And my God, it was absolutely delicious. So you can take something that's even like going like, meh. And start thinking, don't stop thinking creatively. Never stop thinking creatively. And even if it's something at the end that you say, no, it's really not something I like, you'd be amazed sometimes if you turn it into vinegar. So it never stops. I mean, there's, at one point, you know, if you do something terrible, I'm sorry, <laughs> it happens. But you'd be surprised that you can take something that's kind of like meh 
And if you really take a look at it from a creative point of view, you can take that thing that's meh and turn it into something fantastic. So never stop thinking creatively. That's really the, my viewpoint on it. Well, thank you for that and for everything else that you shared with us today and for joining me for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, too. <laughs> and that was Pascal Baudar. Find more about him and his work as a forager and teacher at urbanoutdoorskills.com and his books, including The Wildcrafting Brewer, at chelseagreen.com. Stepping away from this conversation, though he and I spoke about brewing and making wild-flavored beverages, I'm thinking more generally about how easy it is to complicate and to overanalyze our journey and arrive at a place where the results we wish to accomplish get lost in a messy process requiring more work than necessary. Pascal shows us that with his primitive, or as he also says, archaic, brews, and how the modern steps and commercial flavors limit the range of experiences we can create as we scrub and sanitize our pots and fermentation vessels, or leave our brews alone, watched but untouched as the liquid transforms from sugary concoction into alcoholic elixir. How often do we seek this same sterile approach in our other work, only to find the effort falls flat because of the singular direction, and only considering one way? What if we sought more simplicity and creativity in our work as permaculture designers and in our relationships and efforts for community building? Can we strip away the unnecessary and arrive at something more concise, clear, whole, productive, and enjoyable? I think so, and the skills of creating wild foods and beverages provide a place where we can safely explore these patterns before searching for similar details in our other work. What do you think of this conversation with Pascal? Leave a comment in the show notes, or get in touch with me if you would like to discuss this further. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next regular episode is with Kelly Hart to discuss his book, Essential Earthbag Construction. Until then, Explore the wild and the uncivilized while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.